This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Speaking today with Ed Young, staff writer for The Atlantic and the author of a new and truly magnificent book called I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. The view of life, Ed, is truly grander. I mean, when you talk about the microbes within us, what are you talking about? I mean, it's a large crowd. It is. Um, So every person contains 39 trillion microbes in their body. So we're talking about bacteria and other living things that are too small to see with the naked eye. And so 39 trillion means there's roughly one of these for each of our own human cells. Um, So we're only really who we think we are. We're really um, massive communities teeming with life, entire ecosystems in our own right. I am sitting here alone in this room talking to you right now, but I am surrounded and filled with life. And when you walk around, I mean, you're walking around in a cloud. You are an ecosystem. And let us say the two of us meet in an elevator uh, we are exchanging uh, news and views. <laughs> That's right. Um, e- each of us um, ejects a cloud of microbes into the world around us. So we are we are seeding the world with a part of ourselves that consists of all these microscopic things we cannot see. When two people shake hands, they are exchanging microbes. When we move about the world, we are picking up microbes from the world around us. So we really are... A, a sort of grander and more extended set version of ourselves than we have any conception of. You begin the book with a visit to the San Diego Zoo and a peculiar but charming animal called a pangolin. And eventually you come away from that encounter understanding that uh, you and all the animals in that zoo, including the pangolin, have many microbes in common. Yeah, that's right. I I think um, I've been to zoos a lot throughout my life. I loved animals as a kid. Um, And I recognize now that when I go to a zoo, every resident and visitor at the zoo is a zoo in its own right. Um, You know, because we're so full of different living things. Um, and I, in the opening chapter of I Contain Multitudes, I go to a zoo with a microbiologist who studies the microbiome. That's the community of microbes that live in humans and other animals. And I wanted to show people what it looks like to see the world from his eyes, to see animals not just as bodies, but as these teeming communities whose lives, whose biology are profoundly affected by the microbes that they carry. And you come to the conclusion that we are better understood not as individuals, not as Mm. an isolated self, but as uh, islands. All men are islands, but no man is is an island. It's all a matter of not competition, but cooperation. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, So the 
to to take to explain the islands metaphor um it's um all of our body parts contain different communities of microbes um that are defined by the physical traits of those body parts so for example my skin is dry and barren on my forearms um but you know moist and humid in my armpits both of those locations will contain different microbes just as grasslands and jungles in the visible world contain different animals and plants and so you can think of different body parts as this entire chain of islands each of which has its own unique um, microscopic flora And I think that we need to understand that these microbes aren't just hitching a ride on our bodies. They're not just stowing away. They are actually really important to us. They do all sorts of incredible things. They help to digest our food. They help to build and sculpt our organs. They help to craft and calibrate our immune systems. They actually help to protect us from disease. They defend us from illness rather than causing it. So we cannot understand our own lives and our own biology without understanding our partnerships with these microbes because we are built and we live in cooperation and in partnerships with them. But that is a relatively new way of looking at our microbiome. When the go back to the, well, give us a little history. I mean, start with the man in Delft, but then explain how it got changed into germ theory in the 19th century and microbes were seen and have been seen for maybe a century as our enemy instead of our friends. Sure. Um, So microbes are the first forms of life on Earth. They've been around for billions of years, way before we came onto the scene. Um, And we only realized that they existed in 1675 when a Dutchman named Antony van Leeuwenhoek looked down these incredibly powerful microscopes that he made himself. And wherever he looked, um, and especially in various bodies of water, he realized that There was this entire world that he was unaware of, um, full of living things that he and other people just hadn't realized existed. Those living things existed in his body as well. He looked at scrapings of dental plaque from his own teeth. And again, he saw countless living things, countless microbes. And I think that must have been one of the greatest moments in the history of science, the point when um, a, the first person um, realized, like the, the point when a person becomes the first organism in all of history to understand that microbes exist and to be able to see them with his own eyes. Now, Leeuwenhoek had no idea whether these things were actually important or not. He certainly wasn't repulsed or disgusted by them, but his successors didn't share the same enlightened view. Um, In the 19th century, many scientists rapidly discovered that many of the most infamous diseases that have long affected humans um, were the work of bacteria and other microbes, so things like tuberculosis, cholera, leprosy typhoid, syphilis, gonorrhea, all of these were the work of of germs. And so for the longest time, people came to 
came to view microbes as germs, as villains and antagonists, you know, as things that would cause disease and that would co- that would kill us unless we killed them first. So we waged a very successful war against them. We used um, antiseptics and antibacterials. We hit them with antibiotics. We sterilized the world around us. And I think only recently... I mean, for for a long time, even during the heyday of germ theory, even even when people like Pasteur were proving um, were proving it, people realised that microbes might be important. But that view was very subsumed and very neglected. And only recently have we started to understand that actually the vast majority of microbes are benign and in fact beneficial to us and that we need to um, we rely on them and we need to preserve our relationships with them in order to protect our health is germ another word for microbe yeah i see it as a sort of derogatory term you know it's what you call microbes if you don't like them but it it is i think unfair in many instances. Sure, there are some microbes that cause disease, absolutely, but they are by far and away in the minority. The, the, the vast majority of species that live inside our bodies and that live in the world around us are not harm, harmful to us. And in fact, many of them do us good. They are crucial parts of our lives. Well, they, they in many ways, build our bodies. They di- digest our food. I mean, they they protect us from disease. Explain some of the helpful things that microbes do. Sure. So a lot of that becomes clear if you look at animals that don't have microbes at all. So many many animals like mice and fish can be raised in these sterile bubbles uh, where they don't encounter microbes for their entire lives. So they are germ-free. And as a result, they have lots of problems. Their, um, their guts don't develop correctly. Uh, unexpected organs like bones and blood vessels don't develop correctly. And I think all of this shows that you do actually need contact with microbes in order to build and engineer our bodies. Um, the same is true for humans as well. You know, we rely on microbes in order to become who we are meant to be. And we rely on them to protect our health. The immune system, um, large parts of it are built and tuned by microbes. Um, If we didn't have microbial contacts, we would be ill-equipped to protect ourselves from disease, um, which is a very counterintuitive view, I think, but actually one that has borne out over the last decade or so. You use the word symbiosis. What what does that mean, and, and how does that relate to what you're talking about? So symbiosis is just the idea of two or more organisms living together. Um, so, you know, a, a clownfish living in a sea anemone is an example of symbiosis. Um, a, a bird sitting on the back of a giraffe and eating ticks from its back is an example. But, you know, all animals live in symbiosis because all of us contain bacteria and other microbes in our bodies and all of us depend on those microbes for our lives. And I think this is, um, you know, a really important concept that sometimes gets short shrift because we have this very reductionist view of nature. Um, A lot of people see it in terms of conflict, in terms of survival of the fittest or nature red in tooth and claw. But in fact, um, a lot of nature is predicated on these 
uh, on these alliances or on these partnerships between very different living things, things that we can see and are familiar with, the animals we know and love, and the microbes that are invisible to us and unfamiliar to us. But this way of thinking is uh, an answer to uh, the trap of vulture capitalism in which we are now uh, trapped because that's based on on competition. And the, the real point about life, human life, all life, is cooperation, not competition. Sure. I mean, to an extent, it's a bit of both. Like the, the, the microbes that live in our bodies aren't inherently good. Um, they aren't necessarily our allies. We just have evolved ways of living with them and keeping them in line. So we have physical barriers in our bodies that restrict them to certain places. We use the immune system to decide which species get to live within us and which don't. So there's always a, a, a tension there in those partnerships. Um, they are potentially fragile and prone to breaking. But it is true that we do rely on those partnerships. Um, we, we humans, um, despite uh, our narcissistic tendencies, our, our tendency to think of ourselves as above um, the rest of nature, you know, really are dependent on these tiny, single-celled, brainless organisms that um, exist within us. You quote one Dutch biologist, I think, to that point where he says something along the line that the elephant and the smallest bacterium, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that, that reflects the fact that um, our biochemistry, so the way, um, you know, the way our DNA works, the way our genes code for information, the way our cells work, a lot of these things are the same across the entire tree of life, whether you're talking about an elephant or bacterium. And I think that speaks to the unity um, of life, the fact that um, we all came from a common ancestor and we still share many similarities today and we still coexist um, and depend upon one another. Talk about the museum in Amsterdam called Micropia. How does that work? So uh, it is. Uh, so I visited it about um, a, two years ago, and it's a wonderful place. It's attached to um, the Royal Zoo in Amsterdam, and it is a museum devoted to microbes, to the microscopic things around us. It has some of those incredible microscopes that Leeuwenhoek used to see the microbial world for the first time. It has arrays of microscopes so that guests can see the microbes for themselves. Um, it has loads of fun attractions like um, like a kissometer where you can kiss a partner and uh, it will tell how long you uh, maintained the kiss for, how many microbes you likely exchanged. 
um, you know, it's got walls of petri dishes showing um, the microbes that will grow, that live on everyday objects like uh, your keys or your wallets or your hands. And it's got um, this bizarre gallery of stool samples from lots of different animals because stool is a is a is a way of preserve of showcasing microbes. It contains many of the microbes that live in our guts and that help us to digest our food and protect our health. So it's it, it's kind of wonderful, I think, that um, you know what the idea of having an entire museum dedicated to microbes would have been you know, laughably bad about a year, uh, even 10 years ago, people would have, you know, viewed it as a, as a horrible thing. And yet I went there and there were families there, there were kids there, and they were really excited to be learning about this new frontier of biology. And there's a screen. Talk about the screen that you can stand in front of and see your own avatar made up of microbes. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's got this virtual avatar on the screen made up of tiny little dots that are symbolizing the, the microbes that live on your body. If you can move in front of it and the camera will detect your movement and map it onto the avatar, you can select different parts of the body and it will tell you the kinds of microbes that are living on it. Um, I think it reflects just how far we've come in understanding the microbes in our bodies. But also there's so much left to understand. We still don't have a full catalog of the microbes that live with us. We still don't fully understand everything they do or their contributions to our health or to, our, or, or to sickness and disease. And that is a, a burgeoning and really, really exciting area of biology. It, it's really blossomed in the last decades and I think it's going to be incredibly exciting in the decades to come. I think it's going to reveal ourselves in a completely new light and really revolutionize our understanding of what it means to be an individual and you know what it means to be healthy or sick and just what, what it means to be alive. You touch on the forward going science of uh, microbes in your last two chapters, microbes a la carte and tomorrow the world mm -hmm. and say something about some of those projects and speculations and, and mention Mr. Gilbert in Chicago. Sure. So um, there are many, many diseases and disorders that have been linked to changes in the human microbiome. So everything from um, obesity to malnutrition, allergies and asthma, autoimmune diseases, inflammatory bowel diseases, um, cancers. So there, there are... There are many scientists who are trying to look at ways of manipulating and changing the microbiome in order to hopefully improve our health. But doing so is very hard. You know, there are products that supposedly contain beneficial microbiotics, but they don't seem to do very much. They're not very good at changing the microbiome. The microbes that live within those products um, you know, are present in very small quantities, and they're not the right strains and species. They don't do well in our bodies. Some other scientists are looking at ways of completely replacing a person's microbiome in a, uh, at least their gut microbiome in a procedure called a fecal transplant, where you move stool from a healthy donor into a sick recipient. 
and that has been extraordinarily successful for treating a disease, uh, a infection called Clostridium difficile or C. diff. But it also seems to be very hard for other conditions like inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome. So, you know, the the, the critical point here, I think, is that these communities are so complicated and changing and resetting them is very hard. It's like manipulating a, an ecosystem like a coral reef or a grassland with all the complexity that that entails. And we're still at a very early stage of this science where um, we we don't know how best to um, alter a microbiome. But we're getting there and, and people are looking at this not just in our bodies but in the spaces around us. Um, so you know, Jack Gilbert is a leading figure in the microbiome world. He is doing a lot of projects looking at the microbiome of the built environment, of buildings like homes and hospitals. And many of the same principles that apply to those buildings apply to our bodies as well. You know, if we clear away microbes from our bodies by overusing things like antibiotics, we create vacancies where invaders like C. diff, like other microbes that might cause us harm and disease, we create vacancies where those things can flourish. Maybe the same is true for the spaces around us too. By, by over-sanitizing the world, by bleaching and uh, over-cleaning, we have um, removed benign microbes that would crowd out these invaders. So maybe we also need to think about changing the microbes of our microbiomes of our buildings, of, of deliberately seeding microbes that will uh, crowd out dangerous ones and that will create these more safer and more benign spaces. This touches on the problem of iatrogenic disease that, that comes to people in hospitals. They go into a hospital free of infection and come out infected and sometimes die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a problem for sure. Um, it, it and you know where do those where do those um, infections come from? How do they reach a patient? Um, uh, do, you know are they are they it, it, are are they the result of um, of over sanitizing these spaces and creating those vacancies for dangerous microbes to take hold? Um, you know these are these are really important questions that scientists are going to be looking at in future years. This is at the forefront of science now. I mean, I think you say that, you know, 50 years ago, uh, the study of microbes was at, at the fringe, the margins, but now it's at the center of uh, medical research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it used to be... Um something that was only done by, you know, a few odd people working here and there in disparate fields of medicine. And I think recently, because of technological advances and, and cultural shifts, it has become incredibly popular. So microbes have become fashionable for the first time in their billions of years of history. And, um, you know, it's really exciting. In in the States, um, the, the White House launched a national microbiome initiative late last year. Um, in order to um, coordinate and boost research in this really exciting field for years to come, and not just in the human microbiome, but in the microbiomes of, 
you know, prairies and um, and oceans of cows and crops. Um, there's there's a real and growing understanding that we just cannot understand the world around us and, and the living things that we are familiar with without also understanding the unseen microbial world. And your book allows us to see it, even if not with our eyes. But the and it's all you talk about the wonderful new perspective that has mm. given you and i think also you give to your readers and give me a sentence on that new perspective because it's a very i th- i think not only exciting one but a very comforting one yeah i, I think it's the idea that we are all you know none of us are alone we live our lives from the first to the last moments in the company of other creatures and we may not be aware of them but they certainly influence us and and they are crucial parts of our existence and i think that's a lovely idea i think some people might be creeped out by it but i think it deeply connects us to the rest of the living world and it means that there's so much left to discover about that world um, so much we don't know and you know all the great discoveries in this field have stemmed from just a basic curiosity to find out more about the world around us and it's that curiosity that i want to instill in people who read i contain multitudes and that you do. And it, it, it's a truly wonderful book. And thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ed Young, for talking to us. The book is published by Echo Press, and it is itself a wonder to behold. Thank you very much. I'm really, really delighted to talk to you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.